Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by, and welcome to the Datadog third quarter 2020 earnings call. At this time, all participant lines are in listen-only mode, so if you require operator assistance, please press star, then zero. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you will need to press star, then one. Please be advised that today's conference may be recorded. I'd now like to hand the conference over to your host today, Mr. A.J. Lubitsch, Director of Investor Relations. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you, Liz. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today to review Datadog's third quarter 2020 financial results, which we announced in our press release issued after the close of market today. Joining me on the call today are Olivier Pomel, Datadog's co-founder and CEO, and David Opsler, Datadog's CFO. During this call, we will make statements related to our business that are forward-looking under federal securities laws and made pursuant to the safe harbor provisions of the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995, including statements related to our future financial performance, including our outlook for the fourth quarter for the full year 2020, our strategy, the potential benefits for our products, partnerships and investments, anticipated hiring, our ability to capitalize on our market opportunity, and the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on our customers' use of our platform and industry trends, as well as our ability to benefit from these trends. The words anticipate, believe, continue, estimate, expect, intend, will, and similar expressions are intended to identify forward-looking statements or similar indications of future expectations. These statements reflect reviews only as of today, not as of any subsequent date. These statements are subject to a variety of risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results to differ materially from expectations. For discussion of material risk and other important factors that could cause actual results to differ, Please refer to the quarterly report on Form 10Q for the quarterly period ended June 30th, 2020, filed with the SEC on August 10th, 2020. Additional information will be made available on our quarterly report on Form 10Q for the quarterly period ended September 30th, 2020, and other filings and reports that we may file from time to time with the SEC. Our filings with the SEC are available on the Investor Relations section of our website. A replay of this call will be available there for a limited time. Non-GAAP financial measures will be discussed on this conference call. Please refer to the tables in our earnings release, which you can find on the investor relations portion of our website for reconciliation of these measures to the most directly comparable GAAP financial measure. With that, I'd like to turn the call over to Olivier. Thank you, AJ, and thank you all for joining us today. We are very pleased with our performance in Q3, which showed continued high growth at scale and demonstrated efficiencies. It was an exciting quarter in which we maintain our high velocity of product delivery starting with the new products and features announced at DASH, our annual user conference. We are building on our strong track record of innovation and extending our lead as the most complete and cloud-native end-to-end observability platform. With the majority of our employees continuing to work from home, I am extremely impressed by our productivity. Our engineers continue to build and ship innovative solutions. Our go-to-market teams continue to efficiently deliver value to our customers, and we continue to hire rapidly across R&D and sales and marketing to best position ourselves for the future. We are strategic partners to our customers like never before, as the importance of being digital first and agile is more pronounced than ever. Companies everywhere are continuing to migrate to the cloud and invest in their digital operations to achieve these outcomes. And as our market opportunity, driven by massive platforming and cloud migration, has become clearer during this time, so has our ability to execute against it. Now on to a review of Q3 results. To summarize Q3 at a high level, revenue was $155 million, an increase of 61% year over year and above the high end of our guidance range. We ended the quarter with 1,107 customers with ARR of $100,000 or more, up from 727 last year. These customers generate about 75% of our ARR. We have about 13,100 customers up from about 9,500 last year, which means we added about 1,000 customers in the quarter, meaningfully more than the 600 that in Q2. We also continue to be capital efficient with free cash flow of $29 million. And as in past quarters, our dollar-based net retention rate was over 130% as customers increased their usage and adopted our newer products. Now to review Q3 in more detail. Throughout the quarter, Usage growth of existing customers was robust, which was a return to more normalized levels after slower usage expansion in Q2. To be more specific, the pace of usage growth in Q3 was broadly in line with pre-COVID historical levels. As a result, we feel comfortable that some of the rationalized cloud usage from our larger customers that we've seen in Q2 was transitory, as many of those customers have now returned to steady growth for multiple consecutive months. Strength was also broad-based across customers of different sizes, 
and within different industries. In addition to that, new logo generation continued to be robust with customers' additions in line with pre-COVID levels, and trend remained consistent with historical rates. Taking all of this into account, total ARR added in the quarter was a new record for the company, making this a very successful quarter. Next, our platform strategy continues to resonate and win in the market. As of the end of Q3, 71% of customers are using two or more products, which is up from 50% last year. Approximately 20% of customers are using four or more products, which is up from only 7% a year ago. We had another quarter in which approximately 75% of new logos landed with two or more products, and we continue to be pleased with the uptake of our newest products, including synthetics from NPM and Security. I will point out that synthetics has now been commercially available for about a year, and today it is used by thousands of customers, has reached eight figures of ARR, and continues to be in hypergrowth. Adoption of synthetics has exceeded our expectations, which I would attribute to the combination of the strength of the product itself and the power of our platform. As a reminder, frictionless adoption is a key value proposition of our platform, which we expect would benefit all of our products. To conclude my review of the quarter, our ability to both land and expand during what has been a time of uncertainty demonstrates that adopt's importance as companies of all sizes and across all industries, even in the most challenged sectors, are turning to their digital operations as the most strategically important segment of their business. Now, on to R&D. We have a proven and long track record of innovation. And our team lived up to that standard in Q3 with the introduction of eight new products and major features at Dash. Those announcements include the introduction of the Datadog Marketplace to enable technology partners to build applications on top of our platform, the general availability of continuous provider to measure code-level performance to an always-on and low-overhead solution, extending synthetics to continuous integration deployment pipelines, which embed testing earlier in the development process, the introduction of mobile real-user monitoring for both Android and iOS, the general availability of error tracking to aggregate, triage, and prioritize front-end application errors, the beta launch of incident management for DevOps and security teams, the beta launch of compliance monitoring, which extends our security solutions to proactively notify on misconfigurations and compliance drift, and lastly, the beta launch of recommended monitors, a suite of pre-configured, curated, and customizable alerts. Additionally, we recently announced a strategic partnership with Microsoft, currently in public preview, which will make Datadog available to purchase, implement, and use directly from the Azure console. And Azure and Datadog sales teams will increase collaboration for co-selling to enterprise clients. Today, we also announced an expansion of our strategic partnership with Google Cloud Platform, which extends our GCP presence into new regions and enhances our go-to-market collaboration and sales alignment between Datadog and GCP. We believe this partnership, along with our existing alliance with AWS, demonstrate our leadership in cloud environments, as well as the collaborative nature of our relationships with the public cloud vendors. These are just a few of the new features and enhancements we shipped these quarters. Rather than listing them all, I'll conclude on R&D with two main takeaways. First, I am very proud of the continued productivity of our teams. Together, we have not allowed the pandemic and work from home to slow down our roadmap. And we have also been able to successfully hire and onboard at scale throughout the challenging times. Second, we continue to deliver the most complete and cloud-native end-to-end observability platform, and yet we are only getting started. Now on to sales and marketing. As you know, this quarter we hosted Dash, our annual user conference. While this was our first time hosting it in an all-virtual format, this enabled us to reach a broader audience of over 7,000 attendees, which was more than five times last year's count. Dash was a great success bringing together our customers, prospects, and partners to show the power of Datadog and many of the new products we discussed earlier. And I want to give a special thank you to our events and community teams for excellent execution in a quickly shifting environment. Now let's discuss some of our wins this quarter. First, I'll highlight three notable upsells that demonstrate the broad move to digital channels that has been catalyzed by the pandemic and our ability to rapidly scale with our customers. First, the seven-figure upsell with a large Latin America e-commerce company that has been handling record level of orders. This company broke down silos and now has hundreds of users in Datadog collaborating around the shared view of the IT stack. Next, a European on-demand delivery company that has seen its business more than double from last year and has grown its Datadog usage more than four times. 
The company has standardized monitoring on Datadog with a seven-figure deal featuring all seven of our platform products, including security to enhance real-time threat detection. And last, a U.S. gaming company that has seen material growth in their platform and now has a seven-figure commitment to Datadog. In addition to using all three of our pillars, they are using Datadog to support their serverless architecture, they harness our machine learning to detect anomalies before they occur, and they also report on key business metrics to finance and advertising teams. We also had good success with customers from traditional industries that need to transform. We had a six-figure new logo win from a 150-year-old postal service in Europe. This organization aims to deliver more digital, digital services to its customers while undergoing a transition to a multi-cloud and containerized environment. They are using four products, including Synthetics, to monitor back-to-front-end across both on-cloud and on-premise environments. Next, we had a sizable upsell to a European financial service institution. After joining as a customer just over a year ago, this company increased spend more than four times and further consolidated monitoring on Datadog to no exceed $1 million in AR. Finally, we had an upsell with a 100-year-old global shipping company, which we mentioned on last year's call for Q3. Back then, this customer was spending mid-six figures on Datadog infrastructure monitoring. Today, this customer's ARR has crossed into seven figures using infrastructure monitoring, APM, logs, synthetics, RAM, NPM, and security. This is a great example of not only how companies of all stages are undergoing digital transformation, but also of a powerful cross-selling motion as we introduce new products to the market. Now, moving on to our outlook, as we look ahead to the final quarter of 2020, we continue to be excited about the market opportunity ahead of us, and we are confident in our ability to execute given continued strong performance through challenging times. After some of the rationalized cloud usage we saw in Q2, we've seen a clear return to normalized usage growth. It is apparent that cloud migration is not only resilient in the current environment, but may even grow stronger longer term. Companies globally and across all industries are prioritizing digital operations like never before. And the cloud is a clear strategic winner to enable greater agility and innovation. We continue to believe Datadog is a primary beneficiary of this trend and that we remain very well positioned to win in the market. In other words, while the near-term macro environment remains uncertain and could cause bumps along the way, we are very confident in the long-term opportunity and in our positioning. And we believe that we can continue to sustain strong growth both in the near term and over time. With that, I would like to turn the call over to our Chief Financial Officer, David Osler. David? Thanks, Olivier. Uh, as mentioned, we delivered strong third quarter top and bottom line results amid a difficult macro backdrop. Revenue was $154.7 million, up 61% year over year. Usage trends were robust and returned to more normalized growth after the pressure that we saw in Q2. Meanwhile, platform traction continued to be strong, new logo generation was robust, and churn was in line with historical norms. To provide some more context, first, on usage, usage from existing customers was robust and our third quarter dollar-based net retention rate remained above 130% for the 13th consecutive quarter. After some pressure seen in Q2, driven by optimization efforts from larger customers at scale in the cloud, Q3 was characterized by a decisive return to more normalized growth from our existing customers. Throughout the quarter, we saw usage growth that was more in line with pre-pandemic historical levels. The trend was broad-based and sustained throughout the quarter. This provides us with confidence that what we experienced in Q2 was a transitory optimization effort that were related to the challenging macro environment. While further optimization may happen periodically, as we've talked about previously, we feel confident that cloud migration is very much intact and perhaps even strengthening longer term. Recall that we have a ratable SaaS model. Therefore, while Q3 usage growth was back to pre-COVID levels, the pressure experienced in Q2 can still be seen in our year-over-year comparisons for a number of quarters. Our powerful land and expand model continues to be driven by both usage growth of existing products 
as well as the cross-selling to our newer solutions. Next, in the third quarter, we saw continued strength in our platform strategy, with over 70% of our customers using two or more products, and about 20% of our customers now using four or more products, up from only 7% a year ago. Continued product traction is being driven by adoption in the initial land, as well as strong cross-selling. The newest products continue to perform well, growing run rate quarter over quarter. I note that many of them, such as ROM, NPM, and security, are still early and therefore small contributions to results in the quarter. Next, new logo results were solid, with customer additions in line with pre-COVID levels and strength across sales channels and regions. And lastly, churn was stable, in line with historical levels, and improved from the slight elevation seen in Q2. Our dollar-based gross retention rate has remained largely unchanged in the low to mid-90s. Now turning to billings, which were $155.9 million, up 39% year-over-year, against an exceptionally difficult compare. We have said that we would provide a pro forma to more clearly align billings growth with the economics and growth of the business. And in Q3, there were a number of timing and duration differences that affected the growth of billings in the quarter. First, on last year's Q3 call, we had disclosed that there was an invoice timing difference which increased billings by $6 million. Pro forma, excluding that bill, billings would have been $106.4 million. Next, in the quarter, we had an $11 million impact to billings and deferred revenue from a few long-term large customers, which moved from annual billing to semi-annual or shorter durations upon their renewals. Notably, all of these customers continue to commit on an annual basis. They're simply breaking up their bills, as we talked about on the last call, into smaller increments. If we pro forma for these timing effects, Q320 billings would have been $166.9 million. So now, comparing the pro forma billings of 166.9 to the year ago, apples to apples of 106.4, the growth is 57%, relatively in line with revenue growth. Remaining performance obligations, or RPO, was $316 million, up 50 per year. Current RPR growth was similar to pro forma billings growth. As a reminder, billings and RPO can fluctuate, as we've just discussed, versus revenue, based on the timing of invoicing and signing of customer contracts, while revenue incorporates customer usage. Now let's review the income statement in more detail. As a reminder, unless otherwise noted, all metrics are non-GAAP. We have provided a reconciliation of GAAP to non-GAAP financials release. Gross profit in the quarter was $121.5 million, representing a gross margin of 79%. This compares to a gross margin of 80% last quarter and 76% in the year-ago period. Year-over-year -year improvement in gross margin was driven by more efficient, efficient use of cloud infrastructure. The slight decrease in gross margin sequentially was due to minor inefficiencies created from our investments in products and platform innovation, as we have discussed. As a reminder, our gross margins may fluctuate quarter to quarter within an acceptable range as we prioritize product development and innovation, as well as the build-out of cloud data centers in newer geographies. R&D expense in the quarter was $45.8 million, or 30% of revenue, compared to 28% a year ago. We've continued to invest significantly in R&D, including high growth of our engineering headcount. We've been able to attract talent and execute on hiring and onboarding enabling us to deliver multiple record quarters of engineering headcount additions. We continue to see a meaningful opportunity to innovate and expand our platform, and therefore plan to continue to make meaningful investments in R&D. 
Sales and marketing expense for the quarter was $49.7 million, or 32% of revenue, compared to 39% in the year-ago period. Similar to R&D, we continue to make substantial investments in sales and marketing, but the pace of revenue growth continues to outpace that investment. This was another quarter of no in-person trade shows or marketing events. While we have successfully redeployed much of the event's budget to advertising and other lead-generating activities, it was not on a one-for-one ratio. G&A expense was $12.1 million, or 8% of revenue, slightly lower than the 9% in the year-ago quarter. And operating income was $13.8 million, or a 9% operating margin, compared to operating income of $726,000, or 1% in the year-ago period. In addition to the improvement in gross margin, the continued reduction in marketing events, travel, and entertainment, and facilities overhead due to COVID contributed to operating margin. Headcount growth was approximately in line with revenue growth in the quarter. Non-GAAP net income for the quarter was $16 million, or $0.05 cents a share, on 333 million weighted average diluted shares. We have a very efficient business model and have experienced a high return on our investments in sales and marketing and R&D. While we have delivered five consecutive quarters of break-even a positive operating income, we note that our priority remains top-line growth, and we intend to continue aggressive investments in R&D and go-to-market. Finally, turning to the balance sheet and cash flow, we ended the quarter with $1.5 billion in cash, cash equivalents, restricted cash, and marketable securities. Cash flow from operations was $36.3 million in the quarter. After taking into consideration CapEx, and capitalized software free cash flow was $28.6 million in the quarter, or a margin of 19%. Cash cash collections have been very strong amid COVID, a testament to the importance of our solution to our customers. Now I would like to turn to our outlook for the fourth quarter and the full year 2020. While we saw usage growth in Q3 that was consistent with pre-pandemic historical levels. The pandemic is still ongoing and uncertainty remains. Therefore, we are being prudent by factoring into our guidance usage growth trends below what we have seen in Q3 and conservative new business assumptions, as well as continued strong investment in R&D and sales and marketing. Beginning with the fourth quarter, we expect revenue to be in the range of 162 to $164 million, which represents year-over-year growth of 43% at the midpoint. Non-GAAP operating income is expected to be in the range of 3 to $5 million, and non-GAAP net income per share is expected to be in the $0.01 cent per share positive to $0.02 cents per share, based on an approximately $335 million weighted average diluted shares outstanding. And for the full year 2020, revenue is expected to be in the range of 588 to $590 million, which represents 62% year-over-year growth at the midpoint. Non-GAAP operating income is expected to be in the range of 48.5 to $50.5 million, and non-GAAP net income per share is expected to be in the range of $0.17 cents to $0.18 cents per share, based on approximately 332 million weighted average diluted shares. Then some notes below operating income. We expect approximately 1.9 million of quarterly non-GAAP other income, which is net including the interest income on our cash and marketable securities, less the interest expense on a convertible debt. And we do not expect to be a federal taxpayer again, but have a tax provision related to our international entity which we estimate to be approximately $450,000 in Q4. To summarize, we are pleased with the results for the quarter. Usage growth was strong as companies are prioritizing cloud migration and digital transformation more than ever, and we continue to execute at a high level. We delivered an impressive velocity of product innovation in the quarter and are investing to continue that track record. While uncertainty related to the macro environment remains, 
we feel very well positioned to capture what is a large and growing long-term market opportunity. And now with that, we will open the call for questions. Operator, let's begin the Q&A. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question at this time, please press the star, then the number one key on your touchtone telephone. To withdraw your question, press the pound key. Our first question comes from Sanjit Singh with Morgan Stanley. Your line is now open. Hi, and thank you for taking the questions, and congrats on, on the Q3 results. Um, David, maybe just to st start with you, uh, I think the message that I heard off the script was a pretty emphatic um, view from your guys' perspective that the cloud rationing that you saw um, certainly um, improved. Um, it became became less of an issue. Mm -hmm. Expansion trends look like they've gotten back to, to, to pre-COVID levels. If you could just bridge for us, you know, the, the slower revenue growth, sort of in the low 60s versus um, the 80s, but at the same time, I think you mentioned, or I think Ali mentioned, a record new ARR quarter, and if I look at kind of the RPO-based bookings, it seems like there's an acceleration there. If you could sort of just, you know, help us understand how those, those, those three metrics sort of tie together and give us a sense of whether the business is truly, um, you know, rebounding versus what seems like slower revenue growth. Yeah, we had, as, as we mentioned, um, organic growth is a very strong contributor, and that rebounded, particularly in the larger customers, to more historical trends. And we continue to have um, new sales in line. It's the combination of the two that contributed to the record ARR growth. And, um, and, and so those are the main factors. The organic is always the majority of the growth in a quarter complemented by the new business. And, and, and you know, just to, com to complement on that, this is Olivier. Um, you know, if you compare it to last year, so one thing to remember is we have a ratable SaaS model. You know, so um, the the growth we forego, we did forego in, in Q2 is going to be with us in the year-to-year -year compares for a bit. Uh, last year, at the same time, we had an acceleration also, which makes it for a tougher compare. Um, and you know, it's going to the increases in AR. Um, only show up in revenue, you know, when they when they're actually incurred in the in the usage. Um, so it depends on when we added those in the quarter, and also what the exit velocity of AR was in, the, in Q2. So basically, this is this is how you bridge the record AR with the revenue ads that were not record. Okay, I understood that. That makes sense. And then Olivier, on on the partnership front, um, you signed a follow-on partnership with with Google Cloud that you announced today. Um, and then sign, sign another strategic partnership with Azure, sort of intra-quarter. On the Azure front, can you sort of frame out what the opportunity is here to give us a sense of what Azure represents as part of the business today and with the ability of customers sort of to sort of draw down on their Azure credits um, using Datadog, um, how much of an opportunity is this in terms of sustaining revenue growth or potentially accelerating revenue growth um, with with this Azure partnership, if you just sort of frame out the opportunity for us, that would be great. Yeah. So it's, first of all, it's a, I should say we already have customers and cloud providers. We've been working with Azure before, you know. So um, today, um, our customer distribution follows a little bit the arrival of the cloud providers, you know. So we still have many more customers and more revenue volume on AWS, for example, than we do in Azure. Um, we what's interesting with this new partnership is that. Uh, we get more tightly integrated into the Azure console itself, and we're, we're the first vendor to do that. Um, what's interesting there is the, the user base for, for Azure uh, tends to be a bit more homogeneous, or used to be a bit more homogeneous in the technology they use, mostly for Microsoft. And so the ability to be more integrated with the Microsoft tooling really can reduce friction and, and help onboard new customers uh, onto our platform. So we, we see that as a, as a great, you know, um, opportunity to to get more customers and more usage from Azure as Azure itself is growing, and as their customers are diversifying their uh, tech stack. Uh, I should say that uh, uh, you know this is only one of the cloud providers that we're working with. We have we're active on all of the other platforms. We're not another plus, uh, partnership with GCP today. We have uh, another one with AWS. Um, so this is you know an evolution, not a revolution. To your point, also, our customers can use their 
um, the Azure credits and uh, there's going to be some co-selling involved with the Microsoft teams. So we're excited about the lift and go to market there. One last thing to remember is that this is still in preview. Uh, so the, uh, uh, we don't expect any significant volume for that in the near term. Uh, that's something that's going to kick in over the next few quarters. Understood. Thank you, Olivia. Appreciate it. Our next question comes from Sterling Addy with J.P. Morgan. Your line is now open. Yeah, thanks. Hi, guys. Uh, Ali, you kind of answered it with your last comment there, but I just want to make sure that we level set, <clears throat> excuse me, in terms of the timing of the ramp of the partnerships, not only for Azure, but also what you announced with Google as well. How should we think of the timing of that flowing into revenue? It's not going to be immediate, right? So the, the Azure one is, is just in preview right now. Um, it's not completely live yet. Uh, the GCP partnership involves a number of uh, new technical things that need to happen, but also some new go-to-market motions we're putting in place. So there's not going to be an immediate impact. Uh, but, you know, we see that as being potentially meaningful contributors in the mid to long term. That, make, that makes perfect sense. And just one follow-on to that, are we looking at across the three pillars or just specifically for infrastructure on both of these partnerships? Uh, well, you know, the, the entry point for most of our customers is usually infrastructure. Um, but the, you know, as we, as we mentioned earlier in the call, like, in 75% of the cases, it also comes in with another of our products. So we see that really as a gateway into the platform uh, and then a way for us to, to have customers use all three or four products in the end. Got it. Thank you. Our next question comes from Chris Merwin with Goldman Sachs. Your line is now open. Okay, thanks very much for taking my question. Um, I was hoping you could talk a bit about what you saw across the customer segments in the quarter. I think you mentioned that the strength was was pretty broad-based, but I guess within the enterprise segment specifically, are you starting to see more standard, standardization around the Datadog platform, not just with infrastructure, obviously, but, you know, the log, APM, and, of course, this, you know, much, much broader suite of products that, that you now offer? Yes, that's definitely what we see. I mean, we see, I think it's very obvious for customers that uh, they need they need to integrate various parts of the observability together. Uh, and then having all that on, on top of, a, of the same platform is, is a desired outcome. So we see we see more and more of that. But it's not specific to the enterprise. We see that happening over all segments at this point. Great. Then maybe just to follow up, you know, in terms of usage stepping back up, it's very encouraging to hear. Um, you know, as you talk to customers, you know, is there any pushback on, on pricing? I mean, I, I would think not, you know, given that you're seeing usage step back up here, but just Curious, um, you know, what, what those conversations have been like and um, yeah, how you're thinking about, you know, the, the pricing model from here or is this something that really works well for your customer base um, as it is um, and, and there's unlikely to be any evolution of that. Thanks. Yeah, I, look, the uh, uh, one thing I should say is, you know, anytime you, uh, you, you, you charge customers for millions of dollars, uh, they're going to ask questions about the price. You know, it's a, a whole department in enterprises that are built just for that. Um, that being said, at the end of the day, you know, what matters is uh, how much value you deliver for that price, and I think for that we're, we're doing a pretty good job. Um, I think the you know, one thing everybody's grappling with is as more and more applications move into the cloud um, and as applications generate more and more data, what's the best way to align you know, how these data is being used for observability reasons, for security reasons, and other reasons, uh, how to align that with the, uh, how to align the, the value with the, the price being paid. And, you know, when you look at our product uh, offering and what we've been adding, that's why we've added all of these new SKUs to really unbundle uh, what we're doing with the data so customers can really buy what aligns with the, the, the needs they have. You know, so for example, we announced more recently uh, Tracing Without Limits, you know, which is a way to send um, extremely large amounts of data to, to our APM but only retain the parts of it that actually make sense to customers and they want to retain long-term. Um, we've done the same thing with Locks before. We're doing the same thing with our infrastructure product. Uh, these are the way we basically put our customers in control so they can align what they pay with the value they get. Great. Thank you. Our next question comes from Brad Zelnick with Credit Suisse. Your line is now open. Great. Thanks so much, and congrats on another strong quarter, and really nice to see usage growth returning to, to more normal levels. Um, 
David, as investors try to think about the growth algorithm for Datadog in the years to come, clearly you're levered to digital transformations and cloud migration, and we can look to many proxies for this opportunity, perhaps the growth rates of the large public clouds themselves, which, by the way, great to see the, the deeper partnerships mm-hmm. with Microsoft and, and Google. But I'd be curious to know how internally, from a planning perspective, how you all think about this. And, and although I get you're not going to give us guidance right now for next year, how should we think about how you're framing it and, and the rate of investment against that opportunity? And, and along with that, how would you characterize the ability to hire in this environment? Yeah, yeah, good question. So on revenue, um, we we said that over about 60% of our revenue growth comes from existing customers. So we start with the land and expand and, and look at those cohorts and organic. And I think we referred to uh, looking at pre-pandemic and historical trends. So that's at the sort of linchpin, making the business, you know, relatively predictable even in uncertain times. And then we um, – look at the market size, the opportunity, which is, tends not to be a limit. And so what, what is, is it the execution, how many salespeople we get in, how we can ramp them, et cetera. And we then essentially have um, some experience in understanding ramp and understanding productivity. And those are the algorithms we use in looking, um, you know, at growth. I think we feel, and we said this over and over again, that there's a very big market and, a, and we're very early on. So both in terms of product investment, but also in go-to-market. There's a lot of areas that we are still building out. There are a lot of opportunities. There are a lot of successful territories where we have to put more feet on the street. So we tend to build that from the bottom up with, with sales headcount, and that's resulted in, you know, sales and, and, and capacities we've talked about in the 60 to 70% growth. And we see that, and we see that opportunity and based on our success in bringing people in and getting them productive. As Ali mentioned, we have been successful in COVID in hiring, and, um, in, and it hasn't really held us back. We've seen a lot of good opportunity and continue to do that uh, throughout the pandemic. Yeah, and I'll complement that. Sorry, I'll just complement that on the on the, the growth side. I mean, right now we're so early in the opportunity that the way we think about the way we grow our team isn't directly related to the way we think about the, the growth we're going to get next year. You know, we really think of it in terms of how fast we can grow them while, while um, optimizing for both short-term and long-term growth. Um, so we're growing the team as fast as we can, basically, and we think there's enough opportunity to justify it. And that's true both on the R&D side and on the uh, on the sales marketing side, uh, which is why you didn't see us slow down at all during the uh, um, the that would say the the heart of COVID in Q2. Uh, we we maintain our hiring and, and we are very convinced that the opportunity is there. And to just to put that into uh, to, to frame that a little bit, we're growing a lot faster than the cloud providers as a whole, uh, which means there's plenty plenty of market for us to get. Thank you for that. Maybe just to follow up and, and perhaps put a finer point on this, you know, correlation of sales headcount growth with, with top line growth, just as the portfolio continues to expand, especially more, you know, recently with Dash, all the new product announcement announcements, how should we think about the evolution of the sales force to drive efficient cross-selling and special, specialization that might be required in order to hit all the different buyers and, and, and cover all of the product capabilities within the customer base? Are there, do you envision having to make uh, any significant changes in the go-to-market? You know, it's, it's very possible that, you know, every, every company that reaches a large scale and, and grows uh, at some point starts specializing their sales force. We haven't had to do that at this point. And I would say we're optimistic that for the observability part of the, of the stack, uh, at this point, we're uh, we've been very successful at, at, at having one sales team uh, sell that. I think the, the issue might come first when it's, uh, for the, the new categories we're entering, such as security, where the buyers might be a little bit different. There again, these products are new enough, and the customer base is for these products, and the, I would say the, uh, the customers for which these products are mature enough are you know, a small enough group, targeted enough group, uh, that we don't need to specialize the sales team yet, but that's definitely something that's on our minds for the future. Excellent. Thanks so much for the thorough explanations, guys. Congrats again. Thank you. Our next question comes from Raimo Lencha with Barclays. Your line is now open. 
Thanks. Um, two quick questions, uh, and congrats for me as well. Um, Olivier, like, uh, what are you seeing in terms of uh, competitive dynamics? So we had like some uh, one vendor in your space in the broader space is kind of bringing pricing down like crazy and is doing a lot of free stuff. Uh, other guys are just trying to broaden the portfolio, coming up with new cloud products. Just, just so, just a, uh, um, a word on what are you seeing in that space? Um, so broadly, there's no change. You know, the space is very much the same as as it's been for the the, the past few years. Uh, we don't see anything different day to day with customers. We don't see anything different in the uh, adoption cycle. Uh, we hear a lot about it though around earnings time. Uh, but that, that's about it. So no, yeah. no big changes. Okay. okay, perfect. Thank you. And then um, as you think about, like, uh, you know, as you kind of look at the landing motion and uh, expand more the landing motion with all your new customers, have you seen, like, a change in terms of um, what people are taking up? Uh, you, you mentioned at the beginning of the call, you know, a couple of extra stats around uh, how many modules, et cetera. But uh, do you see a change in nature in terms of people understanding observability better and kind of going from more than just infrastructure and just kind of thinking more about this whole thing holistically? Uh, what are your observations, Jim? Thank you. Yeah, there's definitely like, customers expect definitely to get to do more with observability than um, than just infrastructure. I would say uh, the, the the field is uh, is understanding uh, what it needs better there. Um, at the same time, you know, when we land with customers, we, the, we, the balancing act is between uh, having, having them use more products on day one, uh, but also slowing down the, uh, the, the, the landing, you know, which is why the number has been pretty stable around 75% of the land that uh, include two or more products. I think that corresponds to the right balance right now between landing fast and landing with more than one product. Uh, again, landing fast is critical. Like it's a very important part of our business, and we've been very successful at it with our infrastructure products in particular. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Congrats. Our next question comes from Matt Hedberg with RBC Capital Markets. Your line is now open. Oh, great, guys. Thanks for taking my question. Um, you know, at Dash, it was really good to hear the the application marketplace uh, going GA. Um, you know, really seems to open up a nice halo effect for for developers to build application on, on your platform. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, what sort of interest you're having from from developers, and and, and ultimately, you know, you're not alone in, in in software vendors doing this. You know, how do you think about monetizing this, or is is it more of just you know trying to build up more awareness for additional features that you don't deliver as first party uh, features yourself? Well, it's a it's a collection of of all of these, right? I think. Um, we're still super early in this. At this point, we're working with our you know, very first few partners to make sure that we we define the we develop the part the, the platform in a way that's helpful to them. Um, and we think if we make them successful, you know, they'll, they'll make us successful in the long run. You know, so as as far as uh, monetization comes in, uh, we worry about them more than we worry about us at this point, just to make sure they're successful and they get what they want out of it. So super early. We think it's important. We think it's going to play a big role in the future. But we have many, many more quarters of, uh, of innovation to come on these to, uh, to you know, fully deliver on the vision. That, that's great. And then maybe just one for David. Your, your explanation of billings w- was super helpful. Um, you know, trying to tend to think about that on a normalized basis, given all the, the nuances from Q3 of last year. I guess I'm curious though, when we look at deferred revenue this quarter, and and you know, maybe there's an obvious answer to this, but it looked you know kind of sequentially flat. Um, mm-hmm. Was there anything that, that, that impacted deferred this quarter? You know, not necessarily looking on a year-over-year basis, but just sequentially um, from Q2 to Q3? Yes. It's the same um, factor that resulted in the ProForm analysis. There were $11 million of billings from some large customers that um, had would have been in 100% in billing, which were chunked up anywhere from semi-annual to um, monthly billing. So the way to look at that and, and do the apples to apples would be add that same um, 11 million, which reflects the economics, and you'll see the deferred revenue in the mid-50s, like the other metrics that we talked about. I got it. So re- really just a relic of what happened last year then, uh, repeating itself this year. Um, exactly. In terms of the renewals. It, it, 
It's um, deals that renewed annually and grew, and we said last time that we're trying to work with our clients, keep the commitment. These are, these are some very long-term, large customers who are staying with us, but to accommodate them in this environment and their requests to chunk up bills, that's what it is. Got it. Makes a lot of sense. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Our next question. And, you know, and just, just to comment on that, we, we'll see more of that in the future, right? I mean, the beauty of our model is because of the efficiency of our go-to-market, we don't actually care if customers uh, pay us up front. We want to align with them on that. Um, and so we're, I'm pretty sure we'll see more of that as we, as we grow. Our next question comes from Brent Dill with Jefferies. Your line is now open. David, I'm curious if you could just um, expand on the normalization comment you mentioned from uh, Q2 to Q3, uh, add a little more detail in terms of just overall customer behavior. Um, and I'm curious if you could also just drill down on, on the security initiative, what you're seeing there, and uh, what um, what metrics are, are standing out to you from, from, from that uh, uh, that business unit. Thank you. Yeah, let me, let me just go over some of the metrics around organic growth and then Ali um, um, to, for, to security. So um, what we said in Q2 was that we had some of the larger customers um, rationalized, so therefore the slowdown of organic was concentrated first in the larger customers and that about 10% of our uh, customer base in ARR was in impacted industries where there was some pressure. And what we saw in Q3 was a sort of return to normalcy in those, meaning the larger customers continued to now, after that optimization, grow in pre-pandemic rates. And we also saw that the COVID impacted, the impact was taken, the medicine was taken, and they also continued to be stable to slightly up. So essentially it was, across enterprise, mid-market, and SMB, and it was across also the large customer to the small customer that exhibited uh, similar types of organic growth, which is what we've seen over the long period in the company, but saw a different effect in Q2. Um, Ali, on security? Yeah, on security, the, the, I think it's too early to, uh, to have a lot to share there, you know, but the, the product is growing very nicely. Uh, we're getting great you know, adoption stories from customers, but it's growing very quickly from a very small number, So, and it's still very early in its, uh, in its life cycle. So we fleshed out the offering a little bit at Dash, you know, with the compliance product. Uh, there's a lot more we're working on, both of the existing bits and on, on new bits for security, um, so it's still early. And, you know, and just to, to restate, you know, some of what David said on the growth, uh, we're, we're very happy with the growth we've seen in Q3. You know, it really showed a... Uh, uh, reversion to normal uh, for the for the month to month growth. I mean, if you look at the the monthly growth in AR, any of the month Q3, like it, it could have slowed this month in Q in, uh, in Q3 or Q4. Sorry, in Q4 or Q1, uh, they they would have sit right there. So I think it's not like we're we're very happy with what we've seen. At the same time, you know, we're we're still very um, careful about because we don't given the macro back, backdrop. You know, we're still not quite sure what can happen towards the end of Q4. Thank you. Our next question comes from Robert Magic with Raymond James. Your line is now open. Great, thanks. As part of the continual shift to a more multi-style approach, I'm curious if you could elaborate on the experience or results you've had as of late penetrating further into the log monitoring pillar. Into the log monitoring, you said? Um, That's correct. Yeah, I mean, look, the log product is in hypergrowth, right? Um, and it's a, uh, it's a it's a very exciting and also a, a challenging one for customers because it's one of the products for which it's the easiest to generate a lot of fairly useless data and, and have to pay for it. You know, which is why a lot of the innovations we've, we've made initially on that product were around giving customers more control to align the, the what, we, what they pay with the value they get. Um, so we've done quite a bit of that. As we keep growing that product, we're getting into situations where Customers are now standardizing on us for all of their observability, including logs, um, and we've been uh, basically pulled by our enterprise customers to add a lot of the enterprise features that they would, they would expect from a, 
uh, a platform that they send all of their extremely confidential data into. Um, so that's that's a lot to do what we've been doing more recently. And then I know we're just three months out of Dash, but how has customer feedback been so far on some of the new announced products and features? What, what's resonated the most with customers? Uh, it's interesting because it's uh, we've announced many new products, and they uh, they, they all quite quite a bit of attention. Uh, I would say we've got quite a few eyes on the uh, uh, the new incident management product, which is you know, only in beta. Uh, we've got a lot of excitement for the, the profiler product. Uh, so there's a number of different things that customers are excited about, you know, from Dash. I think we still have, you know, in all of those cases, it's still early for those products. So we still have to fully bring them to market. For most of them, we still have to charge for them. Um, and we have to basically work with our customers to make sure that the, these products fully deliver on their promise and on our vision. Uh, but that's the way we build, right? The way we build is we build with our customers. Uh, we put the products in their hands. We make sure they see the value. Uh, we make sure they have the controls, you know, so they can align with the with the pair with the value they get, uh, and then we grow those customers on the, on those products. Great, thanks. Our next question comes from Brad Rebeck with Stiefel. Your line is now open. Oh, great, thanks very much, Ali. As your product set continues to diversify and the revenue stream with it, do you think that has any impact on gross margin longer term? Thanks. Uh, today, we we uh, we don't think so. There's no reason to think we're going to deviate from the model we've had so far. Uh, we might still see some fluctuations, mostly because of the the back and forth between you know building more products and optimizing our use of the infrastructure. Because so are the same engineers that do both, uh, and also because of our expansion to new you know geographies and new data centers and things like that, you know, which might you know push your numbers up and down a little bit. Um, but there's no there's no reason to believe that we're we're heading to a completely different um, zip code there. At least not today. Great. Thanks very much. Our next question comes from Jack Andrews with Needham. Your line is now open. Great. Thanks, Cindy. Congratulations on the results. I was wondering if you could just perhaps frame for us, you know, what percentage of your deals today are partner sourced and just how we should be thinking about you know, new logos that could be generated from your, your partnership ecosystem given the launch of your um, partner network, I think, in, in, in January of this year? Yeah, today it's a very small part of our business that is partner source. Um, and uh, so all of the partnerships we've discussed, they're basically all upside for us. Um, and that's why we're investing in, in, in all of those. Like we think there's a, there's a number of things we can get um, thanks to these partners, um, and we're, we're investing in the uh, – the partner organization in general. You know, we launched our partner program earlier this year. Um, it's starting to see a great amount of success, but it's still a small part of the business. Okay, thanks. And then if, if I could ask a, a, quick, a quick follow-up, could you describe some of the, uh, if, if you need to make some go-to-market changes in particular to scale your uh, your federal business um, and, and how, how we should be thinking about how big this business could become relative to some of your other uh, vertical markets? Yeah, so we're we started building a team for that, right? And we're, you know, as you know, we have uh, a number of things in process for and for FedRAMP and etc. Um, we we think it's going to be similar in many ways to the way we sell to all our customers and different in a few other ways. Um, in terms of the the importance of the business, uh, we think it can be a big part of the business. I mean, if you look at uh, other companies in comparable spaces, like it is a big part of their business, uh, whether it's the cloud providers or you know, other vendors in security or availability. Um, so we believe that there's really a, a real opportunity there. So, again, it's, this is all upside for us. Got it. Uh, thanks for your perspective, and thanks for taking my questions. Our next question comes from Itai Kidron with Oppenheimer. Your line is now open. Uh, thanks, uh, Ali. I'll start with you on the on the cloud partnerships that you've talked about, mentioned before. Can you highlight what's um, unique, or uh, first of all, is there anything exclusive in those relationships? Number one and number two, in what way will it be either easy or difficult for some of your competitors to replicate uh, either the uh, the quality of their relationship or the depth of their relationship with those cloud guys? Um, well, I mean, there's nothing exclusive in, in most of these relationships, right? 
Um, but in many ways, in many situations, like the way they are implemented and what their clientele is a little bit different. Um, and they're also different depending on the cloud provider we work with. You know, so for example, um, the way we're integrate, we're going to integrate with uh, Azure, uh, plugs directly to their console, you know, which is not the case with some of the other cloud providers. Um, so that's something that's interesting there. Now, in terms of what others could or could not do, I, you know, it's hard for me to comment. I mean, I believe that, you know, it's software, you know, so if we can do it, others might be able to do it. I think what we've proven uh, time and time again is that because of the overall structure of our, of our products, uh, because of the, uh, the structure of our customer base not going to market, uh, we end up having a product that is a lot easier and, and has a lot of friction to adopt and ends up being more widely adopted. Um, by our customers and, and more successful in the end. And I think that's what we, that's what guides basically, uh, the way we run all those partnerships. You know, so what attracted us to the Azure partnership was the ability to reduce friction there. Um, and that's, that's why we decided to invest in that first. That's great. And then, um, David, a question for you again. Sorry, going back to that duration on that large, uh, customers, uh, the 11 million. Yeah. Um, can you uh, at least confirm that uh, those customers have expanded at your roughly your uh, net dollar expansion rate? Is it, I'm just trying to make sure that this isn't just uh, taking a bill and splitting it by half, but it was taking a bigger bill and splitting it by half. Yeah, no, they've, they've been customers that have um, grown substantially. Um, you know, one of them is a customer that's more than doubled over the last uh, year or so. So this is this is merely um, that we have changed the billing terms, but they are all customers that have been growing with us over the last few years. Got it. And then lastly, on your um, underlying assumption for some softness in usage in, in your 4Q guide, um, half pretty much in, into the quarter, it doesn't sound like there has been any unusual usage softness in that month and a half, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so aren't you just being a little bit too conservative here? I mean, what is it, the scenario that truly uh, worries you with so little time left in the quarter? Yeah, I think just overall we've tended to be um, conservative in our guidance to incorporate usage growth rates that are lower than what we have seen and new logo accumulation that's lower. And um, I think we said last time um, that given that philosophy and the fact that, you know, we're in the pandemic and we can't predict what might happen around the world, we wanted to continue to roll that conservatism forward. So it's really that at the core of the guidance um, rather than anything that in particular that we've seen that's different than what we said on the call today. Very good. Good luck, guys. Yep. Our next question comes from Bob and Surrey with William Blair. Your line is now open. Hey, Jen. Thanks for uh, taking my question. Um, Olivia, I guess I'll touch on uh, first a little bit about um, the technology architecture. And uh, this comes up a lot even when we're talking to investors. Maybe a little help in, in understanding. So today when you look at sort of even the infrastructure monitoring space and the way data all works in the sampling model um, with logs, you know, this, which data makes sense, which doesn't. But, but there's this idea that with sampling, you're not getting all the data and some of the vendors um, in other markets are saying we can absorb all the data. How do you think about that, and would it be difficult for you to absorb all the data? Is that too much data? Um, oh, we, we, we totally absorb all the data. That? We totally absorb all the data, absolutely. There's no sampling. Uh, sampling is something customers can choose to do if they, if they don't want to retain everything and store everything. Um, but it's absolutely, we take all the data. It's actually one thing we announced recently with our uh, uh, tracing without limits, product, uh, yeah. it actually allows us to be to the only ones to actually take absolutely 100% of the data sent to our infrastructure and available in real time, even in extremely high-volume environments. And then we you talk to environments where you know, they're keeping track of millions and millions of, uh, of requests per second. Um, so we, we do that, and it's not something the other vendors don't do. So we there's no sampling required. Sampling is just a way for customers to decide, hey, the millions and millions of debug logs that my developers are sending, I only, I only need to keep 10% of them to see what's going on as I retain that in storage for a longer time in Quant Analytics uh, without having to pay for that. Oh, great. I appreciate the clarity. And my second one's kind of a more longer-term question, but it's about the machine learning. You know, so some of the other vendors are marketing heavily the focal uh, point of machine learning. 
And I'd love to understand sort of how you think about that vis-a-vis competition and, and sort of what extent are you seeing APM customers especially leverage the watchdog automatic uh, anomaly detection uh, service you introduced uh, maybe maybe last year, 12 months ago. So I'd love to understand a little bit of the thought process there. Yeah, so a couple of ways to look at it. So the first one is we actually think it's a, because of our model and we're fully SaaS, uh, machine learning is a strength of ours because we, we actually see all of the data. We can train our algorithms on all of the data, and we can pick and choose the, the problems and the use cases that we want to solve with machine learning. Uh, versus the ones that we don't. So it's, a, it's actually a strength, and it's a long-term structural strength for, for what we do. Um, that being said, uh, we don't like to lead with the promise, the promise of an AI that fixes everything for you, uh, because we think in general those promises under-deliver. You know, they look great in the demo, uh, but then you know, in a number of specific use cases, you're going to find them to, to fall short, uh, and that's not what we want. And that's true of you know, pretty much all the products you see there today. So our approach is to basically under-promise, over-deliver, and we think we have long-term structural strength in there because of the way we run our products and the data volumes that we see, which is not something that most of our competitors can do or have. Um, now, in terms of the adoption we see, we've been purposefully uh, selective in the uh, situation, the use cases we saw with WhatDoc today. But we see, we see WhatDoc being uh, used by our customers in, in real situations, and they rely on it, and that's something that we keep building upon. Got it. Got it. Thanks for the color. Congrats, and uh, thanks for the comment you're doing. Thank you. Our last question comes from a line of Andrew Nowinski with DA Davidson. Your line is now open. All right. Thank you for squeezing me in. Um, just a quick clarification on on the billings. I understand the you know the larger yeah. customers are growing at pre-pandemic levels, and um, your your COVID impacted companies are are slightly up. So it sounds like the environment and the usage, the cloud usage significantly improved from Q2 to Q3, um, but I'm wondering, you know, if you look at your billings on a sequential basis, after even after normalizing, so that is only up $6 million sequentially, um, despite that significant improvement in the environment. So I'm wondering, is there any other factors there that we should consider, um, given that the billings only went up $6 million? No, we've we said all along that um, billings has to do with when bills, you know, went out. The, the, what, the, the advice is to take the uh, revenues for the quarter, and then um, in mul- multiply that by 34, 35 percent, or something, and that's the that's and then times 12, and that's sort of the linearity, and that's what drives the the business. What we're doing with prof- with billings, uh, despite the fact we don't run, is we're trying to clean away some of the noise of when a bill went out this quarter versus that quarter, which isn't germane to the top-line growth of the business. So um, I would say urging everyone back towards, um, you know, the ARR approximation and the top line, and we're just basically giving pro formas here, which all are um, sort of in the 50% and RPO, et cetera, which is more in line with revenue growth. Okay. And then I'm just wondering if just – could you touch on the competitive landscape, both for the uh, the APM space as well as log management? Thank you. Uh, yes, we'd like to know on the competitive space. I mean, it's very much the same as it used to be. It's um, fortunately or unfortunately a little bit boring. Um, so any any particular question on the competitive space? Or? Well, have you seen any sort of um, win rate improvement? Now that your uh, you know, cloud use is just certainly getting better, I'm just wondering if your win rates have improved versus competitors like Splunk and Elastic in the log management space or Dynatrace and New Relic because they've they've you know, different pricing changes. You know, most of our business is not replacements, right? Most of our business is net new. Um, so the we we do see some replacements from time to time, but that's a small minority of the the accounts we land. Um, the world is moving to the cloud. Most companies are new to the cloud. Most companies are new to these environments and, and need observability, and they don't have anything yet in that cloud environment, even if they have on-prem, and they start using us for that. Um, I don't have a win rate improvement to report, but I'm also not unhappy about win rates. I actually don't even look that often at win rates because that's not what drives most of the uh, the acquisition for us. Okay, thanks. That concludes today's question and answer session. I'd like to turn the call back to Olivier Pomel for closing remarks. Thank you.
one second. Right, so he's got a one-year-old who was just barging in. That's what you do, uh, what you get for working from home. In any case, uh, in closing, I'd like to reiterate that we are very pleased with our performance in the third quarter. Uh, I'm very proud, proud of our execution, and I, I want to thank our employees for uh, the strong productivity that they've shown during the quarter. Uh, we recently celebrated our 10 years anniversary this summer, and I want to say I'm incredibly, incredibly proud of the culture we created. I'm incredibly pr- proud of the work we accomplished and of the value we delivered to our customers. But I'm even more excited about our future, about the strength of our team, and about the magnitude of our opportunity. So in other words, uh, the message you should get from this call is that we're just getting started, um, and we're all super excited about it. Thank you all for attending. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes today.